At this time, kids are dismissed to head on down, invited to go down to uh, kids' worship. And for the rest of us, why don't we open up to the Gospel of Mark as we continue our study through this Gospel. We are beginning chapter 10 this week, and we're looking at verses 1 through 12, as I said in my prayer, uh, Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce. I'm going to begin reading for us in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the uh, chair there in front of you. It would be good to have the text in front of you to follow along. Verses 1 through 12 of Mark 10. Mark writes and it says, He, Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation... God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is God's word. I think it's one of the biggest privileges in pastoral ministry to be uh, the closest uh, to the bride and groom in a wedding and lead them through their marital vows, vows that they are making to one another for an entire lifetime. To be right there as they hold hands and look deeply into each other's eyes and say, I take you to be my husband, my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us uh, to have, and to love and to cherish, until death do us part. You can see, even, uh, even after doing so many weddings, I still don't have the vows memorized. <laughs> what an amazing vow amazing commitment. And yet I know as they run down the aisle together, despite the beaming smiles on their faces, despite the head over heels and love feelings that they have for one another, despite the premarital counseling they've received, I know that sooner than later, their marriage will face conflict. It might even be day one of the honeymoon when they realize that they haven't married a perfect saint. Uh, Marriage is a tremendous blessing, and marriage is tremendous work. In a song that I listen to occasionally by a a band called Bombadil, entitled just Marriage, they talk about how marriage is tremendous work. The lyrics of the song go, what would you say to marriage after the 200th time I told the same joke, and then I broke your favorite watch with my heel?" What would you say to true love after the 200th time I told you I loved you and then I blew your confidence with a lover that was in my past? I thought you knew this was 
marriage. Would you still find me pretty after the 200th time I wore the same skirt and then I hurt your dream job offer because I was scared? Would you still buy me dinner after the 200th time I dropped my silver fork and the nursery rhyme stork never brought a baby to you? Just two names on a court certificate, 20 years and still the same kiss. I thought you knew. I thought you knew this was marriage. Marriage is a tremendous blessing, and marriage is tremendous work. And marriage today, we have to say, has been so cheapened in our society that we have, by and large, lost the, the sense of its sanctity in our minds. And because it's been so cheapened, divorce has also been very cheapened and easy to obtain and more and more prevalent. In my research this week, I discovered that half of all first-time marriages end in divorce, and the rate gets even higher for second and third-time marriages. The average length of a marriage today is approximately eight years. Uh, 60% of divorces are a result of sexual infidelity. 25% of divorces are a result of domestic abuse, and 75% of divorcees cite their reasoning uh, for their divorce as being commitment issues. Jesus in this text is teaching us that marriage is a tremendous blessing and it is tremendous work. And as we come to these words, I come to them with a lot of sensitivity because we realize that each one of us does not come to this text neutral. Uh, there are folks uh, sitting here this morning who are happily married. There are folks who are single who wish that they were married. There are folks who were married who wish that they weren't married. There are folks who are divorced for whom this text brings up a lot of pain and a lot of guilt. And we have widows among us who this text uh, reminds you of how much you miss your spouse. So we come to this solemnly, we come to this seriously, but we have to look at it. It's an important part of our discipleship with Jesus. And the very sensitivity of this topic is seen in the fact that this is the topic the Pharisees used to try to trip Jesus up. Take a look at verse 2. In verse 2, the Pharisees came up in order to test him. All along the Gospel of Mark, at this, uh, from, from chapter 3 onward, the Pharisees are out to get Jesus. They want to put him down. They want to stop his following. And so in this text, they get together, they say to each other, how can we get people to get, to, to finally stop following this man? What topic can we use to really test him and get him down? I know we'll use the topic of divorce, a sensitive topic that will really get people fired up depending on what he says. Now, what question do they ask him? They ask him in verse two, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife. That question is packed with a ton of baggage that Jesus would have been aware of. It was packed with uh, the baggage of rabbinical interpretation, what the rabbis uh, said the Bible says about divorce. It was packed with cultural landmines of the norms of society in Jesus' day, including the abusive power of husbands over their wives, which was very prevalent in Jesus' day. Not to mention the fact that they are now in this text in the region where John the Baptist got his head cut off because he spoke to this very issue 
talking about the immorality of Herod's divorce. And so how is Jesus going to cut through all this stuff? How is he going to navigate these landmines? He does something brilliant. Take a look at verse 3. In verse 3, he doesn't answer with an answer. He answers with a question, a question that cut through all of that stuff. And this is what he asked them in verse 3. What did Moses command you? In other words, hey, guys, you're Pharisees. You're the ones who know your Bibles best. You know what Moses said. What has God commanded? What does God's word say? Not what the rabbis say, not what the culture says of the day. What does God in his authoritative word say? And what do they reply? In verse 4, they reply saying, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. What they're referring to is a command in Deuteronomy 24, but they're actually misquoting the command. The command, if you look at it in Deuteronomy 24, you'll find that it was a command meant to make divorce harder to obtain, not easier to obtain. And the idea was that a man could divorce his wife if indecency was found in her, sexual immorality. What the Pharisees in Jesus' day had done is they took that word indecency and they interpreted it to mean any old things. If she burns the biscuits, she didn't iron your trousers the way that you like, you can just send her away and divorce her. They had abused this command. And so what does Jesus do in verse 5? In verse 5, he corrects them and he says, it's because of your hardness of heart he wrote you that commandment. Because of sin, God had to give you a commandment about divorce. But then in verse 6, you'll see, but from the beginning of creation, he says, What he's essentially saying is, guys, that's not the commandment I was inquiring about. I wasn't talking about what Moses said in Deuteronomy. I'm talking about what Moses said on page one of your Bibles. Not the commandment that Moses gave about divorce. I want us to think about the commandment that Moses gave about marriage from the beginning of creation. When asked about divorce, Jesus talked about marriage. He changed the conversation from divorce to marriage. And what we're going to see in verses 6 through 9 this morning is God's glorious intention for marriage. We could spend a whole month of Sundays just on verses 6 through 9 if we wanted to, but we just have one week, so we got to work our way through it. Four glorious things, four glorious things that God intended for marriage as Jesus teaches here in verses 6 through 9. What was God's glorious intention for marriage? Number one, marriage, Jesus says, is baked in to God's very good creation order. It is baked in to God's very good creation order. Look at verse 6 again. Verse 6, Jesus says, from the beginning of creation. He, he couches marriage in the very beginning of creation. Now, those of you who have baked uh, desserts in the past, something that just tastes very good, you know if you miss a principal ingredient in making it, is it going to turn out very good? It's going to turn out very bad. It's going to look bad. It's going to taste bad. 
Jesus is saying that marriage is a principal ingredient to God's creative uh, order. It is a, a principal ingredient to the very goodness of how God uh, cultivated uh, creation. Do you remember in Genesis 1 and 2, what is the repeated phrase? As God creates things, he ends by saying, and it was good. And after he was done creating everything, he looked at it and he said that it was very good. And then after that, directly after that in Genesis 1 and 2, he gives us a command, be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion over creation. Manage the very goodness, stored the very goodness of my creation. And what does he do after he gives that command? Through Adam and Eve, he institutes marriage. He puts man and woman together in the covenant of marriage, saying, this is the institution wherein I want you to be fruitful and multiply. This is the institution that will help maintain the very goodness of my creative order. Marriage was created by God before sin even entered the world. It is a glorious gift that God has given us. One way that we can experience the paradise that God intended for us is in our marriages. Of course we know because of Genesis 3, now marriage is fraught with conflict because of sin. But even a sinful marriage has a remnant of God's very good pleasure and paradise that he intended for us. Marriage is God's invention and not just man's idea. Ray Ortland in his great book, Marriage and the Mystery of the Gospel, has this great quote where he says, marriage is not a human invention. It is a divine revelation. Its design never was our own made-up arrangement of infinite malleability just to change it whenever we want. It was given to us at the beginning of all things as a brightly shining fixity of eternal significance. We might not always live up to its true grandeur. None of us does so perfectly. But we have no right to redefine it. And we have every reason to revere it. Number one about marriage, Jesus says, is that it is baked in to the very goodness of God's creative order. The second thing he shows us in these verses is that marriage is the union of one male and one female as two equal complementary parts. Uh, take a look again at verse 6. In verse 6, he says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Jesus is saying the very basic aspect of marriage. You want to understand the basic aspect. Look at the gender distinction and the wonder of what God has done in creating male and creating female. He's quoting here Genesis 1.27, where God says, he made us in his image, male and female, he created them. Male and female are equal in dignity and value, but they are distinct from one another. They are different from one another in that a man is not a woman, a woman is not a man. But they come together in complementary parts at the biological level, the emotional level, the spiritual level, in every way. Genesis 1 and 2, when it was written, blew the world up. Because by and large, when Moses was writing Genesis, it was a man's world. 
and women were not seen as significant as they are. They were seen as second rate. They were seen as only as good as what the, the men, uh, they could do for the men. And God, in establishing uh, Genesis 1 and 2, reminds us of what he intended. That man cannot live without woman. Woman cannot live without man. We need one another. And marriage puts on display the amazing complementary nature of male and female. The longer that I'm married to Hannah, the more I come to appreciate the gift of womanhood that God has created as I see it exemplified through her. There are things that she can do that I will never be able to do because she's a woman. And the longer I'm married to Hannah, when I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, the more I come to appreciate the gift of manhood as I see that there are things in our marriage that only I can do because I'm a man that she can't do because she is a woman. And when these two come together, it creates a power team that only God in his infinite wisdom could create. Male, female, equal, but distinct, complementary, coming together as a power team under God. A third thing that Jesus says whoops, in these verses is that marriage is God's intended context for the enjoyment of sex and family building. Take a look at verse 7. There is a logical order, an important order, of what God intends for our relationships with one another in verse 7. Uh, quoting Genesis again, Jesus says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Here is the pattern that the Bible lays out, God and his wisdom, for our relationships. It begins with dating and courtship. It moves on to a marital covenant, and only under that marital covenant then do we share a home, do we enjoy the good gift of sex, and begin to raise children. Now, we live in a society that has jumbled that order up by and large, so that now it's date, have sex, move in, have kids, and then maybe get married. But God has established the order that the very good gifts of sex, of living together, cultivating a home, cultivating a family, are to be enjoyed in the security of the marital covenant. See, in our day, what we have done is we have elevated um, romantic affection and erotic attraction above covenantal commitment. And God says... Covenantal commitment has to stand above romantic affection and erotic attraction. Because if you flip the two, what happens when the romantic feelings go away? What happens when you got a furniture problem and your chest starts dropping down to your drawers and you don't look as good as you used to at age 25? Well, I'm out. I'm going to go find me someone who makes me feel the romance again. I'm going to find someone who gets me excited so long. But under the covenant, the marital covenant, we can enjoy these superior gifts of sex, of family, of living together because we have committed for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, for skinnier or fatter, I'm not going anywhere 
because you're mine. And I'm in this till death do us part. And I have no one else to compare you to because I'm yours and yours alone. The security of a family is in the foundation provided in the marital covenant under God. It's good for the husband and wife because they know that they're in this thick and thin. It's good for the kids because the kids know that mom and dad will always be around because they've committed to one another that they will be around. And they get to see uh, dad's godly manhood at work and mom's godly womanhood at work and a power team uh, for their raising and for their uh, support and nourishment as they age. And as J.C. Ryle tells us, it's good for society. He has this amazing quote in his commentary that I read this week. J.C. Ryle says, the marriage relation lies at the very root of the social systems of nations. The public morality of a people, the private happiness of the families which compose a people are deeply involved in the whole question of the law of marriage. The experience of all nations confirms the wisdom of our Lord's decision in this passage. It is a fact clearly ascertained that polygamy and permission to obtain divorce on slight grounds have a direct tendency to promote immorality. In short, the nearer a nation's laws approximate to the law of Christ, the higher has the moral tone of that nation always proved to be. See, the Bible paints marriage not just as a, as a thing between a husband and wife, but it's something that is for the good of the entire community in which the husband and wife live. Marriage is not just relational, it's missional. The man and the wife come together as a missional power team to cultivate good in the world that God has set them down in. The next thing that Jesus shows us in these verses is that marriage is an unbreakable union made by God. Take a look at verse uh, 8. Verse 8, Jesus says, in the latter half of verse 8, uh, the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. A whole new, uh, a whole new identity, a whole new reality. Adam is no longer just Adam, but he is Adam and Hannah. Hannah is no longer just Hannah, but she is Hannah and Adam. We too are one. We come together and you cannot separate us. We share a whole new reality and a whole new identity of oneness, one purpose, one decision, one family, one bank account, one bed. I think it was Johnny Cash who said that there's only one healthy separation in a marriage, and that is separate bathrooms. Uh, I suppose we'll allow him that one. That might be a good idea. One, one. And what does Jesus say in verse 9? He says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. God has joined this together. Every marriage, your marriage, was by God. Your marriage is for God. And your marriage is through God. And the conversations that we ought to be having when it comes to marriage is not a conversation about separation but a conversation about reconciliation when it comes to conflict. How countercultural for Jesus' day in which marriage was so easily obtained. How countercultural for our day 
where divorce is so easily obtained. And the shocking nature of his teaching here can be seen in how the disciples respond. Take a look at verse 10. In verse 10, once they get into the privacy of the house that they were staying in, the disciples asked him again about the matter. They wanted clarification. He was talking about marriage, but he was asked about divorce. Finally, Jesus talks about divorce in verse uh, 11. And Jesus said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. In other words, this unbreakable union that God has made is so solid, is so inseparable, that should a wife divorce her husband or a husband divorce his wife and get remarried, it is as if God doesn't even recognize the divorce, but sees that there is uh, cheating going on between the two spouses. Now, we have to be careful when we deal with verses 11 and 12, because this is not the only place in the Bible where Jesus teaches us about divorce. There are other passages we know where Jesus speaks about divorce. In the Sermon on the Mount passage, in Matthew 5.32, he gives us an exception clause. And the exception clause is, he says, everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality. He permitted divorce under the grounds of sexual immorality. Makes her commit adultery. It was a permission. It wasn't a commandment, but it was a permission. The question for us is, why isn't that exception clause here in the Gospel of Mark? Why does he leave the exception clause out I think that the context has everything to do with why he leaves the exception clause out. Because he knows that he is speaking to people who are looking for easy divorce, as the Pharisees were, and asking the question, and what was prevalent in his day. I was so helped by James Edwards in his commentary on this. He says, the adultery clause is not the key to Mark's narrative. The essential thrust in Mark's passage about divorce is the inviolability of the marriage bond as intended and instituted by God. And he goes on and he says, in marriage, as in other areas to which the call of Christ applies, this is so good, will we seek relief in what is permitted or commit ourselves to what is intended? In other words, are we, when it comes to God's commandment, are we, when it comes to our discipleship with Jesus, are we constantly going to look for the exception? Or out of love and gratitude and seeking to worship him, will we focus on the rule? Will we place ourselves more weight on the rule than in the exception? Jesus here, in speaking about divorce, is trying to uphold the sanctity of marriage. He changes the conversation from divorce to marriage because marriage is a tremendous blessing and marriage is tremendous work. Now, I want to speak to the singles. If you are here this morning and you're a single, it is not silly. It is not silly for you to desire a spouse. It is a God-given desire he even planted in our hearts from the very beginning of creation. Wait for it. Pray for it. Seek it. Seek a godly spouse who will help 
you live for Jesus and live for the Great Commission together. Wait for his timing. Pray for it. But also, your singleness is not insignificant to Jesus. Maximize your singleness for the glory of God. You know how many single people God has used to do extraordinary things for his kingdom? Use the singleness that he has given you in this season of your life to make much of Jesus while you hope, while you pray, while you seek a spouse. To the divorced, those of you in here who have gone through the devastation of a divorce, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Remember way, way back in Mark 3, Jesus told us that for those of us who trust in him for salvation, we do not stand condemned in our sin. He said all the sins of man will be forgiven and whatever blasphemies they utter. As devastating as a divorce is, God's grace goes deeper still. There is no divorce that has outweighed the weight of his grace. And watch how his redemption will begin to work out healing and reconciliation over time through the, 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 the tumult of a divorce. And to the married, marriage is a tremendous blessing. And marriage is tremendous work. Working on it is so worth it because our marriages are more priceless than we can ever imagine. When Paul was speaking about the reality of marriage, he said this in Ephesians 5. He said, speaking of marriage and what it represents, he said, I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church, the relationship that Jesus shares with us as his church. He is the only husband who is true to his marital vows, not just till death do us part, but for all eternity, because in him we will live forever and he will always stay faithful, no matter how rebellious, no matter how unfaithful, no matter how hard-hearted, no matter how sinful we are towards him, he is the husband who never throws in the towel. And Paul is saying, our marriages are a picture of this, that the world should see the power of the gospel through a man and a wife's commitment to one another. The best thing that you could maybe do in terms of displaying the power of the gospel to the world is cultivate a Jesus-centered marriage with your spouse. That might be the best thing you do in your entire life. And husbands, we take the lead in that. God has given us the leadership role. Take a look again at verse 7. Notice Jesus says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Ray Ortland again in his book has this great quote. He says, in marrying, a man joins himself to his wife at a profound level. He does not ask her to move his way, to do all the adjusting toward him, but he takes the initiative to move toward her enfolding her into his heart, bonding with her as with no other human being, not even his children. He rejoices to identify with her as his wife. At every level of his being, a husband should be wholeheartedly devoted to his wife, loyal to his wife, steadfast to his wife, as toward no other. I was remembering Pastor Bob Kern, who used to pastor here many years ago before he passed away. 
whenever he did weddings or whenever he talked about marriage, he loved to talk about how Eve was created from Adam's rib. And this is what Bob Kern would say. He would always say, Eve was taken from Adam's rib, not his feet to be his slave, nor his head to be his master, nor his back to always be three steps behind him, but taken from his rib, close to his heart, a side-by-side companion to walk hand-in-hand through life, pursuing Jesus together. Husbands, the woman who is sitting next to you, provided she's your wife, (laughs) is your queen. She is royalty to you. And God has placed you in her life to take the initiative to love her as Christ loved the church, to lead her in sanctification, to lay all your desires, all your preferences down so that she might shine like the queen that he has made her to be. As we close, marriage is a tremendous blessing. Marriage is tremendous work. We need each other in our marriages. We need the fellowship of the church. And if your marriage is in a place where the lights are flashing, saying, help, 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 don't keep the conflict secret. Let, itself, let, let yourself be known to people you can trust, to people who love Jesus, people who've been married longer and weathered storms that you haven't yet. Get the help that you need because it refers to Christ and the church. As we close and the worship team comes up, we're going to be singing a song that is familiar to us, His Mercy is More. I'm going to ask us to do something a little different than we normally do. If you're sitting next to your spouse, I want you to hold your spouse's hand during the last song as we sing it. And as we hold the hand of our spouse, I don't know where my wife is. I hope she comes up front to to meet with me so I can hold her hand. As we hold hands, it's not a symbol that everything's okay, we have the perfect marriage. None of us have come in here with a perfect marriage, period. But what the hand holding means is, I love you, and I'm committed to you, and let's continue to pursue Jesus together, hand in hand. And we're going to sing the powerful words over our marriages in the chorus. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins are many, his mercy is more. As we 